Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome back to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. We have been off the air over the summer, having some downtime and regrouping, but we are delighted to be back with a powerful new series of podcasts on the theme of power to the people. We will, of course, be talking about power and energy, about the crisis, the impact of the crisis on a just and fair transition, what the energy pressures will mean for clean and renewable energy. In this series of podcasts, we will explore the benefits and pitfalls of different forms of energy generation, wind, solar, wave, nuclear, hydro, talking to experts, industry leaders, policymakers and academics. But, and no apologies for the shameless play on words, we will also be exploring power to the people, as in people power. How we as citizens can empower ourselves and others to tackle the crisis we are facing, the energy crisis and the climate crisis. Our increasingly fragile planet is under threat as never before. Our national net zero commitments have received a battering under the new Conservative administration. Investment zones, the overturning of EU legislation that provides habitat and species protection, abandoning ELMS payments to farmers, all these point to a disregard for climate and biodiversity. However, as we enter the autumn, groups as diverse as XR and the RSPB are mobilising to fight back. So we will bring news and information about those movements in people power. And what better place to start than with my guests today? Natalie Bennett, Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle for really formal occasions, became the second Green member of the House of Lords in 2019, having been party leader from 2012 to 2016. She is unusual in politics in that her first degree was in science, brackets agriculture, and she can get very geeky about soil science. But that doesn't matter because we love geeks on the pod. She's been a feminist since the age of five and spent two years working for the Thai National Commission on Women's Affairs as a volunteer. Natalie, hello and welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Amanda, and it's lovely to be with everybody. Carla Hill is Associate Director of Political Economy and Governance at the independent think tank E3G. Among her other roles at E3G, Carla leads the hugely successful London Climate Action Week, which convenes action on climate across public, private and not-for-profit sectors with hundreds of events in person and virtually. And this year was an extraordinary week of activities and programmes and no doubt she'll tell us about them. Previously, she was Global Programmes Council and Director of Programmes at Client Earth and she has over 20 years of professional experience on the environment, climate change and energy law and policy. Carla, so lovely to see you and thanks for being on Planet Pod. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. It's great to be here. It feels to me as if we've been through a pretty tumultuous few weeks in the last month or so. So I wondered if I could just start by asking you both just what you make of it and and what do you feel has been happening? Maybe, Natalie, could I turn to you first? And Can you make some sense of what's been going on? Well, uh, when I was elected as leader of the Green Party in 2012, I started saying around the country, the future of politics doesn't look like the past and we're in a very unstable situation. And people kind of looked at me doubtfully then, but that is very clearly the situation now. It's very easy to feel um, worry, fear, and I understand that people do. But where we are now is profoundly unstable, and that's actually really good news because we're trashing the planet and creating a thoroughly miserable, poverty-ridden society with huge levels of mental ill health. We need to change. We need to change the way we do everything, politics, economics, um, education, all of these things need to change. 
And it's clear that what's not going to happen is the status quo where we are now is not going to continue. So you know, my, I'm always looking for the good news messages. And the good news message is that we're in an unstable situation because the old system, which has failed us all, both the, pl- the planet and its people, is breaking down. And this is a chance to build something new. It's certainly been a whirlwind, hasn't it? I think it operates at different levels. There's a real sense that there's just huge shifts globally and a real sense of crisis. Um, And, you know, even a year ago, as you said uh, earlier, COP26 was a real high point in terms of the UK hosting, um, you know, a real huge kind of global sense of keeping 1.5 degrees alive on the the climate front, people coming together, leaders coming together, coming out of COVID. And yet this year we've had multiple crises, uh, not least of all, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we've had then at the national level in the here in the UK uh, a real sense of uh, a, a little bit of a, a kind of almost a fallow period of, of little action through through the summer period with the the Conservative leadership race, and then just a few weeks where we've just had turmoil um, unleashed, kind of on top of of that sense of crisis internationally. And yet, at the same time, I look at the UK's uh, public levels of support for environment and for climate action, and indeed, just all of the initiatives and the energy behind that from civil society, from local communities, uh, in the business community. And it's a really, really uh, positive picture in terms of what is happening. So I think there is a question about uh, the signals that are coming from government, uh, you know, contradictory signals to a certain extent, um, whether on fracking or solar. Uh, There's a question there around the role of local communities that perhaps we can come back to. There's a sense that uh, we've got a review of the net zero uh, target that the UK enshrined in law what 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 next? You know, we're coming up to 15 years of, of the Climate Change Act. What is the role for people for inclusion and so on in this context of immense challenge? Um, and at the same time, I think we do need to think, well, where is the alignment between people and the planet or these outcomes? And that's, I think, what we could perhaps delve into a bit more, because I think the the crises that we're facing, if anything, point in the direction of uh, a greener world and making those choices. Yeah, and it was a really dominant theme, I think, of London Climate Action Week this year, wasn't it? That sense of civil engagement and individuals, both in their communities, you know, whether it was faith groups or local communities or school groups or educational institutions, and individuals as members of businesses and corporates who really seemed to me to have got, in the words of some of our politicians, got the climate crisis, understand the need for action, understand that net zero isn't just something that, you know, they're not easily banded about words. They actually seriously mean behaviour change and working differently and doing something. And I don't know how you feel, Natty, but it feels to me like we're in, a t- we're in parallel tracks. So the world that, that Carl has been describing and that I experience, and I'm sure you experience, you know, with your, you know, from, from the Green Party perspective, is that this stuff really matters to people. It's keeping people awake at night. And yet we have this completely disjointed set of decisions being made by our new administration. And the signals are on, are terrifying, frankly. 
Well, I think they're very definitely um, pointing in two different directions. I mean, as we're recording yesterday, I was with the Plunkett Foundation, which works with rural community businesses around the country. And you speaking to lots of those people who operate those businesses and you know what exciting things they're doing, both on the climate perspective, the local environment perspective, but also very much on the local prosperity, you know, dealing with issues of loneliness, issues of people of lack of access to services. Um, but you know, behind all of that was, well, this system gets in the road, the government gets in the road. Uh, there's all of these, the old leftovers from, from the past age in which we've allowed a few multinational companies to utterly dominate our economy. And the idea that what we have to do is chase after what's been called efficiency, which means um, maximum financial return. And that's got us into this mess. And very many people are saying, this isn't working. We need a different approach, a human-centered approach that really thinks, you know, what is the economy for? We shouldn't live our lives to serve, in quotes, the economy. The economy has to work to look after people, to give, make people's, meet people's needs, to ensure that everyone, you know, we shouldn't rest until the last food bank closes because of lack of demand. Um, all of these are issues about our current system. The system is not just trashing the planet. It's also giving people you know, a really dysfunctional lives. It's destroying communities. And you know, the problem is now our current structures. So my message is always to every group that I speak to is that everyone needs to make politics what they do, not have done to them. And doing politics you know, at its very base means just getting together with your friends, your neighbours, your work colleagues, and saying, what don't we like about round here and how do we change it? How do we improve it? And that's doing politics. Um, and But it also needs to operate at all kinds of levels. And that means, you know, we essentially need a different political system. We need a different economic system. Uh, and now's a great time to do it because where we are now, um, you know, the Financial Times is probably one of the uh, places where you can find some of the strongest critiques now of our current system because people within the system can see it's not working. I completely agree with you. And I and I think if you look at kind of Green Party, you know, if we're talking politics, Green Party activism, then absolutely that plays out with the sorts of things you've been saying. I mean, the, you know, the, the local Green Party engagement is increasing across the country. You know, where I live, it happens to be particularly active and people are doing politics. But the system works against us, doesn't it? And I think that, but I suppose my anxiety is that we've, it felt as if we were really moving forward semi-collectively in the right direction. I mean, you know, we didn't get everything we needed from COP last year, but we got a lot. Um, we certainly got huge amounts of corporate engagement and, um, and, and, and business engagement across the piece, which is really important. Um, but we can't do this if the system that we're working within is completely blocking. So, I mean, unless we can take action... And, and, you know, you, you, you led that very powerful coalition in the House of Lords earlier in the year to stop some of the really extreme measures in the, in the crime and sentencing bill, um, you know, which are preventing people from doing just the sorts of things I described in my introduction of actually coming together and having people power and protesting. So, so it feels as if we're really caught between the things that we know we want to do, the things that are right, the things that will improve our society, not just in terms of our climate, but also in terms of people's well-being and welfare. What can we do, Natalie, apart from, you know, mobilise locally? I mean, what actually can we do? What are your feelings? You sit right at the heart of, of Westminster. What is it that we can do to just break this, what seems like a, a dangerous path that we're on? 
Well, I think if I sometimes say that if you invite me to come and talk about algae, I'll get the word democracy in there somewhere and make it central to, to what my answer is. And um, the fact is that people are, you know, in my definition of politics is organising a litter pick is a political act. Um, running a community garden, setting up a community garden, that's a political act. So when I say do politics, that's what I mean in the broader sense. Yeah. But when people are doing that and finding this, this you know, the centre here in Westminster is the problem. Um, we have a political system. Uh, it's, of course, um, an unwritten, uncodified constitution that's been arrived at by series, by, by centuries of historical accident. Um, the last significant change in the operation of Westminster was women getting the vote, which was 100 years ago. Is it any wonder we're in a mess? Mm. And you know, people, when they operate in the local area and then run up against barriers coming from Westminster or indeed coming from the structure of their local council, you know, it's really crucial not to say, well, that's a fixed thing that's set in stone that we've just got to live with and go around. Um, we need to make the UK a democracy. Make Votes Matter, a brilliant organisation that's campaigning with a laser focus on calling for a parliament, a lower house, the House of Commons, reflecting the views of the people, which is it doesn't now because, of course, Boris Johnson of the power in the lower house with 44% of the vote. Um, people who focusing on that, but more broadly saying, you know, we have a huge problem with the focus of power, money and resources on Westminster. Um, we are the most centralised polity, um, certainly in Northern Europe, in most of the world, actually. Local government has remarkably little power and resources compared to most parts of the world. So saying these things are all problem and we need to change them. Um, Sometimes people say, you know, how are we going to change the system? How do you get the turkeys to vote for vote for Christmas? Um, well, the answer is they have to be forced through um, political demands from the public, saying, you know, we want a democracy. We want our. We know our future and our children's future is at risk. We want a system where we have a say. And as Make Votes Matter points out, um, countries with who are more democratic with more proportional systems actually have lower carbon emissions. You can actually do the graph. It's very simple and very obvious. When the people have a say, you get stronger climate and other environmental policies and stronger social policies. Oh, that's really, really interesting. I didn't know that. Carla, I can see you nodding. Picking up on that point, I think some of the change does have to be delivered at a at a national level. And, and I, of course, agree with Natalie's um, point on the UK is incredibly centralised. There's there's a lot of power uh, reserved to to Westminster and to Whitehall, and a lot of decisions that are made there. And it will be interesting to see how, with these shifts, that may that may start to change. Because I think climate change may itself be a driver for opening up some of those conversations. At the same time, in terms of where we are right now, I think. You know, Amanda, you mentioned deregulation, and after the UK vote to leave uh, the EU, there was a huge mass organisation among the environmental community, and the thirteen or fourteen large environmental groups that sit in the Greener UK coalition. Um, I, I worked with the coalition for a number of years. Represent about eight million people in the UK, and. You know, if you compare that to the number of Conservative Party members, you know, the numbers are very, very different. And I think we've seen that already in the last few weeks, that there is a 
groundswell against some of the changes that are being proposed and the attack on nature, for instance. And, you know, to make the National Trust, the RSPB, say on Twitter that they are angry, you have to poke quite hard. No, those are these are quite conservative organisations. And yet they have members in the UK that really, really care about these things. And they have done for a, for, for a long time, a large base of membership. So if you're thinking about those kinds of organising structures that Natalie is talking about, those are really, really important. And they actually have an impact, um, you know, globally. There are people, you know, that really care internationally. Similarly with, you know, the, the UK's well-developed international development community, you know, that, that really has very strong reach. And is there any validity in the argument that deregulation of this kind will speed up um, energy generation, that, you know, taking out regulations, putting in investment zones will mean that we can build more wind farms, more quickly, more solar farms? I mean, or is this uh, actually just, you know, a blind? I mean, it, it could could there be the the infamous Brexit bonus from that some of that form of deregulation, or is that just nonsense? Look, I think the thing that really makes a difference is sending a policy signal that you're going to remove the moratorium on fracking or that you're going to ban solar PV on farms and farmland in the UK. Those are the really big game changers where government policy can set a direction. So I think planning is important, but I think those those big signals, particularly in a, in a very centralised system, have a real impact. And the other thing to say is in, term, in terms of onshore wind, again, there was a political choice made uh, not to enable onshore wind development for a number of years in the UK. And we've now got solar and wind, uh, the cheapest energy sources we could be accessing. I thought the the carbon brief analysis of the fact that we've now got an extra 2.5 billion on energy bills because of the green things that were cut was really compelling. You know, that was things around zero carbon homes, the energy efficiency programs and onshore wind, not even taking into account solar. So I think these are the really big signals. And this is an area where, as we now face these crises, we can say, well, I wish that we had really invested in those energy efficiency things. But we can also organise to say, actually, we really need to go there and, and, um, and get a move on because that is the future. Just to say, in terms of special investment investment zones and um, uh, free ports, etc., all the historical evidence is is that what happens is is existing businesses move to benefit from the concessions. Um, if you have removed protections from workers, workers get exploited. Um, you know, if you take the rules away, people it's just cowboys move in, um, and huge amounts of money get shipped off into tax havens, and that's essentially the story of Freeport's special investment zones. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just a terrible, a terrible, terrible idea. Interesting that you, you talked about um, some of those um, measures to make our homes and our businesses more energy efficient, Carla. I mean, it, you know, just picking up on Natalie's point about changing parliament. I mean, you know, suffragettes had to chain themselves to ra- railings and risk forced imprisonment to to gain a democratic vote. At the moment, we consider it appropriate to throw people in prison because they're calling for home insulation. I mean, it does feel that we're in a kind of slightly disjointed, dystopian world. Can we learn anything from democracies across the world? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, we are the least um, democratic in some of our institutions in terms of, you know, getting getting ideas across and representation and, and actually voices in parliament. And I'm thinking about the teals in 
Australia, who came out of part of the climate movement, even though they are, some of them are traditionally more conservative, small c. I mean, are there models and mechanisms that we can use and that we could perhaps try and encourage people to adopt here? Um, I, I think the chance of getting independent you know, an independent elected to government is pretty slim, isn't it, because of the first-past-the-post system. But are there things that we can learn? Externally, it's often seen as, oh, it's all about climate. And climate was a huge part of the issue. And you, Australia had an explicitly climate change-denying government, and that's still what's now the opposition party, you know, has a huge number of climate change deniers. But there was also a real utter fed-upness with the corruption, with the dysfunction, with the failure of the political system. Uh, and particularly, um, particularly Australian, but we certainly have elements of it here too. Um, the male-dominated, extremely rambunctious, um, bullying kind of political culture. Um, and so, what was really interesting, I think, to learn from Australia is that when people say we're fed up with this system, we've had enough, we're going to try something different. People are prepared to do it. So it is actually much a much broader story than just climate, even though climate is central to it. Um, and you know, one of the things that's really, really obvious is it's heavily gendered. Uh, nearly all of the, you know, the teals were women very explicitly running against a macho political culture. Um, and there's something in there of, you know, saying about doing politics differently, talking about politics differently, not playing political games. You know, speaking of someone who's here at the heart of that, it's a question that I ask myself every day is you have to decide when do you go work within the system to do what you need to do to make this in small improvement to this bill, get this amendment through or whatever. But when you just say, well, this is broken and corrupt and failed and, you know, break through the existing system, that's a balance everyone has to make for themselves every day, I would say. Are you taking any sort of strands of hope from what you see, both from kind of civil society, but also from from bigger business? Because, you know, the, the need... The, 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 my sense from COP26 was that there was a real engagement by large corporates in this, and they are now started on a track that they aren't just going to stop overnight because there's been a change of administration. So do you sense that there's a kind of momentum and a, and a movement that will actually help us ride through this current crisis? Because I think we have to describe what's happening at the moment as a crisis because, you know, there are so many aspects of, of um, climate change and, and the environment that are under threat. Um, is there, is there cause to hope somewhere? Finding agency is really crucial because I think in the face of crisis, we need to really be careful that people don't say, oh, they're all the same, we can't change anything. I think that sense of not being able to act worries me as much as any of the corruption itself because I think that is really where people are disempowered. So I think I do have a sense of... Uh, hope from the fact that people can create change themselves. And you know, I just wanted to come back to E3G does a lot of coalition building and, and really uh, organising at a political level. And there is a some work done around energy efficiency. And, you know, we have uh, now for the end of October, we're now waiting to see uh, a budget from the government. And there is a lot of organisation going on and there is a lot of voices, really cross-sectoral voices from big energy companies through to social organisations like Citizens Advice, large local authorities like Greater Manchester, big charities like Age UK, the National Trust, 
and others, really organizing around energy efficiency, for example. Now, energy efficiency, as I mentioned earlier, has been one of those areas where there have been a lot of cuts and it's been really difficult to make progress. But I would say that coalition, um, you know, there was a there's some work that we we did at E3G earlier in the year with about 19 civil society organisations. Now this group that has just written to the government is around 70 strong. So, you know, that's in the face of these crises, actually stepping up and working together across these sectors. And I think that also, to me, signals a different role for those corporations and really broadening out that idea of business activism and what businesses can do I think is really critical. Again, I mean, we've seen companies have really geared up, as you said, on things like participating in the non-state actor, as, it, as it's called within the international climate negotiations, uh, organising around the race to zero and making a lot of commitments. I think there's also been risks there because I think there is scepticism from people around greenwashing, and some of that is very, very real. At the same time, companies have really geared up in terms of their commitments to sustainability, really investing at very senior levels in the organisations, putting it in the C-suite, putting it on the board and so on. Those are real changes. And I think working with those companies to help really create a more ambitious uh, vision for what they can do and to hold them to account for the commitments that they've made is really, really crucial. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, that you, I'm hugely encouraged by what you say about that the coalition and the expansion of the coalition because this has to be a coalition doesn't it this has to be a gathering together of 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 you know those of us who who care passionately and have some level of information and those who are actually in a position to help make change happen Natalie I think we've seen a real shift in the last year or two um, in, in an understanding that you know, there was a lot of focus traditionally in community effort of I've got to cut my personal carbon emissions um, and I always say regularly to audiences, um, I'm not interested at all in your personal carbon emissions. You know, what we have to do is make the green thing the easiest, cheapest and simplest thing to do. Also make sure that's the socially responsible thing to do, i.e. it's not based on child labour, slave labour or whatever. Um, if we do that, then that's what everyone's just going to naturally do and everyone will have the time and energy to do. Um, so people sometimes say to me, oh, you know, I'm trying to ensure that I have absolutely no single-use plastic in my life. And that's a good general aim at a certain point. But if you just cycle two hours across town and back to ensure that you haven't used five grams of plastic, um, perhaps you could have used those, those the, all of those hours to get together and organise to try and ensure that you have supplies in all your local shops that don't contain plastic, and that will have a much bigger impact. So you know, what we're talking here is, Often we talk about um, these issues as business as usual with added technology. Things just go on as before, but with solar panels and electric cars. What we have to do is move towards a different kind of society that people have the time, the energy and the space. And of course, if we had a universal basic income, lots of people now who, you know, some people give up their work, their, their paid working life and devote themselves to campaigning if they're lucky enough to be in a position to do that, many of them sacrifice a lot to do that. Um, but many more people can say, well, I really have a passion, some ideas. I want to do things. I want to create new organisations with a universal basic income. I could spend my time doing that. Absolutely. And it's being trialled in Wales, isn't it? So it's been hugely fascinating talking to both of you. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, Natalie, we didn't get a chance to talk about soil. Um, 
we, <laughs> we will have you back to talk about soil because we spend a lot of time talking about soil. Um, but, but I just wonder if, you know, probably a bit facile to ask you, but it, what is the one thing that you think we as individuals could do, listeners to Planet Pod, if you had a call out now to say take, take action on something, what would be your, your one action, Natalie? I mean, my one action is make politics what you do not have done to you, which simply means people sometimes say, oh, I don't know if I should work with my local community garden or I should, you know, get involved in politics and, you know, should, should I join a political party? Should I run for office? My answer is that do what feels right for you, what suits you, what you enjoy. You know, it's really crucial. We all have to look after ourselves and do things that we enjoy and you'll probably be good at what you enjoy. Um, and so getting involved, you know, that's what I mean by doing politics, is getting involved with other people um, to make things better, whether that's on a really small scale. I was once at a school in Bradford uh, where um, they, you know, was the VIP visitor, they took me to lunch and because I was the VIP visitor, I got real cutlery and, and everyone else had plastic knives and forks that they were trying to eat their baked potatoes with with a notable lack of success. You know, a campaign for real cutlery mightn't sound like the biggest thing in the world, but it would, you know, it would possibly save the school money, it would reduce the amount of plastic and it would make lunch more edible. Win, win, win. So there are win, win, wins like that all around us. Um, go out and find your win, 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 get together with others and have that first win and then move on to the next yeah, one. because it's a progressive process, isn't it? Once you start winning, it becomes addictive. Thank you. Carla, have you got a call out? I mean, to perhaps to, to, perhaps to something beyond just the individuals, perhaps to some of those other organisations. One, I would really hope my call to, to, to you know, to the government and to, and to those in power would be really... To, to listen to some of those voices. I think there is real wisdom and value and expertise that lies in those organisations. Um, you know, it's really crucial in terms of how we deliver net zero in the UK that people are involved and that people are a part of it. And I think those civil society organisations from business to large NGOs, but not just environmental NGOs, but also the social ones, uh, the, the local authorities, there is expertise there that people know how to get things done. So I totally agree with, from the individual point of view, with Natalie saying, you know, get involved. We also have to recognise that, you know, people have really challenging, you know, people are very challenged at the moment in terms of their everyday lives. So I think there's also a space for some of those large organisations to increase and amplify the voice of everyday people and to actually help government figure out how to deliver this stuff. So I think there's, I, I would really love to see a more inclusive way of doing climate politics, a kind of greening, a green democracy and a, and a greening of democracy would be my call. I think that might be happening. I mean, there's, you know, there's 8 million plus votes out there sitting in those organisations that you described and many, many more. So when we've got, you know, XR and RSPB standing together outside Parliament, then we are beginning to really green green the voice aren't we of, and, and and it's about inclusion of everybody so so yes I mean a, a fantastic thank you I completely agree that's that's what we need we need a greening of democracy it's been delightful talking to you both thank you so much for your time um and thank you for kicking off this new series of, of planet pod where we've been talking about power to people and people power and I'm sure we're going to come back to this because it's going to be a recurring theme throughout the the coming months so thank you so much it's been great to, to have you with thanks us. very much thank you for having me 
Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. As you know, we're not afraid to tackle really serious and difficult subjects on Planet Pod, but we also want to celebrate the great things about our environment and our climate and the natural world. And I have been able to persuade Jim Haywood, who for many years has acted as producer and director and editor of the pod, to come out from his cupboard and join me Mike's side for a regular series of updates on nature, things that have captured his imagination and possibly sometimes even his camera. So Jim, hello and welcome to Planet Pod. Oh, thank you, Amanda. It's great uh, to see what it's like the other side of the microphone, or to hear what it's like the other side of the microphone anyway. So. It's wonderful to have you here. So I'm, I'm really delighted, actually, that I'm I'm being sl- I'm in slotting in. It's being slotted in as the not serious item. So thank you very I much for that. I didn't mean not serious. I probably meant not gloomy, really, if I'm honest, and 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 more joyful. I, joyful. I, well, joyful. Yes, I am gloomy, actually, a little bit, Amanda, because I'm 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 one of the eight million members of the R- well combined RSPB. I'm a, well, I'm a member of the RSPB, the National Trust, Wildlife Trust. Eight million members, and the and the RS, they've all said that they're angry at what, what's currently happening with the, you know the government's decisions to kind of ride roughshod over so many of our uh, you know our, the regulations and, and planning laws which protect the natural environment. You know, and I'm angry. I am angry with them. I am very angry. You I have good reason to be angry, actually. Depressing. I think, and I think as as Carla said, it takes something to make this group of people angry who are naturally not politically but small c conservative in the sense that they care about you know. A slightly slower, more conservative approach to life, but of course you were angry. We're really angry. How dare they undo all of that really vital, important yeah. legislation that that protect, protects habitats and ecosystems and and the things that really matter to so many of us, um, the natural world around us. And it isn't just because we care about things looking pretty or being able to see rare birds and rare species. It's because we know that a healthy ecosystem is the building block for a hu- for human life. And actually, if we don't get this right, then there's no point. I mean, you can have all the growth in the world, but if you haven't got a healthy planet to live on, it's pointless. Uh, absolutely. And, and what was particularly telling, I think, for me, I and mean, I'm a grandparent, I've got two grandchildren, fantastic. My four-year-old grandson, he said to me the other day, so, you know, Grandpa, did you know that the blue whale uh, is nearly extinct? You know, and, and this is from a four-year-old. And, he, and then he reeled off a list of, of other animals, you know, tiger, rhinoceros, et cetera, all of her face you know who are threatened by extinction and i thought you know how sad is that that a four-year-old who's who's enthralled and excited and, and in, you know enthused by by the natural world and by these creatures is telling me that you know the, the, how sad he is he said you know i'm sad he said because I, because i love them isn't that a burden it, 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 is a, it is a burden it is a burden but you know but on the other hand you know there are positives and i think um one of the things I've been doing this summer, uh, you know, is looking out for butterflies, uh, and not just butterflies, also also moths. Uh, and did you know that there, are, you know, there are fifty nine species of butterfly in the UK? But how, do you know how many species of moth there are? No idea. In the UK, two thousand five hundred, which is amazing, isn't it? I mean, you know, incredible number. Uh, a lot of them are, sort of, uh, are night flying, and a lot of them are micro moths, and ones that are really really tiny sort of little things. But but there are a number of so called day flying moths. Uh, and one of the things that I've been looking out for and i've been really you know thrilled to see is is a, is a moth called the hummingbird hawk moth uh which as i said it's a day flying moth it's a migrant visitor to the uk comes from sort of southern europe and, and each year the, the numbers vary um and last year i saw a few and i was really excited and i took some photographs uh this year i've seen you know an amazing number you know it is as it's a really amazing creature it's like a sort of a little mini 
almost like a bomb that flies from buzzes from from flower to flower. But as its name suggests, you know, it, it literally hovers and it, it sucks the nectar from, you know, from the flowers it's feeding on. Uh, and it then zips to another one and then zips to another one. Feeds on things like red valerian, honeysuckle, uh, verbena benariensis, which is what we've got in our garden. Um, and this year, the RSPB's Garden Word Watch, the people that are in, involved in that, I think it was something like 5% of the people who reported you know, against that saw um, hummingbird hawk moth in their garden, which is compared with sort of about you know, 1.5% last year. So you know, quite a significant increase. But there's another one called the, the greater wax moth. Uh, which is also known as the honeycomb moth or uh, Galleria melanella, uh, which actually sounds like um, a bit like an ex- exciting Italian ice cream, doesn't it? Um, but the saliva of the wax moth's caterpillar is actually capable of digesting polyethylene. That's something that's been found out very recently. And polyethylene is the most common form of plastic. It's really tough, really difficult to break down, and it makes up many of the two million plastic bags uh, that are used across the world every minute, most of which are thrown away within 20 minutes. So a real, real issue. And a lot of those, obviously, as we know, end up in the, in the rivers and oceans. So it's a real nuisance. The actual moth itself or the caterpillar uh, is, is being well known as being a nuisance, for, particularly for bee to, uh, bee, beekeepers, because it eats the honeycomb, which are made out of wax and which store the, the nectar for the bees. So it's a real problem. But apparently the enzymes in the wax, in, in the wax worms or wax uh, moths caterpillar uh, that the enzymes in its saliva breaks down polyethylene so fantastic you know so, so we have found something that the natural world is providing for us which is potentially going to uh, solve or help us to solve one of these really really challenging issues of what do we do with all this plastic particularly the plastic that's uh, circulating in in the world's oceans you know um, so hurrah, hurrah for nature. Absolutely. And you've restored my faith in moths, Jim, because I have to say my m- most recent moth encounter are the kind that eat through my sweaters. So <laughs> so the idea that there's one that eats something productively and does something useful is really fantastic yeah. to hear. And, and yeah. you know, it's what I love about conversations with you is you always find something, find something for us to celebrate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so as well as being angry, you're also optimistic. You've got to have hope. You have got to have hope. Otherwise, come on, you know, what's it all about? And I know that Planet Pod listeners will be really excited to see your fabulous photos because I've seen a few of your photos of of the hummingbird court moth on Twitter. And I think it'd be great for everybody to be able to follow you and see them. So that's a a must for everyone. Follow Jim on Twitter. What's your your handle, Jim? Uh, Jim Hayward 10, I think. I don't know why it's Jim Hayward 10, but it just happens to be. But anyway. And we'll repost them on the Planet Pod Twitter as well and our Instagram account. Absolutely. So thanks. Yeah, yeah. Great to chat as always. Thank you. It's lovely to love to have the opportunity and the, so to see what it's like. It's really it's quite easy, isn't it? Actually? Shh, don't say that. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Um, join us again soon. Take care and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.